Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Investing with IBD sponsored by Marketsmith. Today is September 23rd, 2020. I'm your host, Arusha Pierce, and today we have Larry Adam on the show. Larry is the Chief Investment Officer of Raymond James for Private Client Group. Thanks for being here, Larry. Thanks for having me, Arush. On today's podcast, we are going to talk about the current markets. Uh, we're going to talk about headlines versus reality, and then we will end the episode with the K recovery. So let's get into the current market, and the market is under pressure. We have collected a number of distribution days, five distribution days on the NASDAQ, seven on the S&P 500. That's before today. We potentially could be on the verge of going into a longer pullback or a correction. Uh, Larry, what are your thoughts on this market? You know, it's interesting. If you just take a step back and you look at what's happened this year, yeah. I mean, we've had the, so many records, right? We had the, the quickest bear market decline we've ever seen. We've had the quickest bounce back. And you know, it's ironic. As we sit here today, even after record volatility, we are back to basically where we started the year. It's basically flat for <laughs> the year. And I, I, just, I just think that that's a really good reminder to investors that you got to be careful in these markets and not make these panic-driven decisions. Yep. Because if you would have gotten out at the lows earlier this year, you would have missed out on that big, big rally. You know, I think part of this is part of the natural uh, pullback that we're having. You know, we've had an incredible run-up. There were some things that were taking the market up for really no reason. I mean, you had IPOs, you had stock splits, you had some M&A activity, you had people fearing that they were missing out. And I just think it took it a little bit too far too fast. And this is more of just a natural digestive period. And we're in September, right? Which is typically the, the weakest month of the year. So, right. you know, I, I think this is just, you know, par for the course, if you will. Yeah, I know. And, and that's good advice. Sometimes you do have to take a step back. This has been uh, the last four months, four or five months have, have been, it really has been the most ridiculous rally that I've seen. I've been doing this for over 20 years. Um, you've been doing it for, for longer, but it, uh, it, it's just amazing at how consistent and steady the rally was. And so some kind of pullback, some kind of correction isn't a shock after such a strong move. Yeah, and I think by that big rally that you're talking about, the multiples of the market got up to the highest pricing that they've been since 2001, right. which left it more vulnerable to some of these new headlines that have been coming out. You know, a second surge possible in COVID. Yeah. Uh, the fact that, you know, monetary policy, the Chairman Powell's been out saying, look, we can't do it by ourselves. And I'll tell you, that's one thing where I've been a little bit different from the rest of the street. I mean, I think the Fed has done an incredible job. But a lot of my counterparts on the street have been talking about the fact that that's going to continue to make the multi multiples go higher. Mm -hmm. Now, the one thing I would, I would just mention is the fact that because they've deployed everything, taken interest rates to zero, they've already done a lot more quantitative easing, there's not much of a buffer if, in fact, we do get a second recession or something along those lines. So I think there's actually a little bit more risk if we do get something like that occurring. That's, that's really interesting. And... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I mean, I didn't think about it that way, but I've been hearing for a while that, you know, the Fed has run out of bullets, uh, but somehow the, it seems like the, the quantitative easing has worked, at least for the short term. And then, you know, it has kept the longer term uh, market in an uptrend, though, too. No, absolutely. I mean, first of all, they've helped stabilize the economy by bringing confidence back and they've kept liquidity open in the market. And, you know, that's a big reason why everybody talks about the economy is not the equity market. Well, think about what they're buying in the corporate bond market. They're buying a lot of those companies that you see in the S&P 500. And that's brought their interest rates lower. 
And that's actually helped them with their financing throughout this uh, pandemic. Yeah, yeah, no, and, that, and that, that's a really, really good point. Uh, so Larry, let's, let, let's take a step back here. And, and let's, uh, let, let's go into how you got into investing. You've been doing this for, for a while now. Uh, and uh, walk us through what inspired you getting into investing and what were some of the first steps you took uh, to get into this industry? So it depends on how far back you want to go. Well, let's, will, go let's go back. <laughs> I will tell you, I've been doing it for a long time. And, and I always think back, my father was actually a, an advisor at Morgan Stanley. And back when I was middle school and, and in high school, he used to always take research reports for individual stocks and, you know, fold them and put them by the television. So where most kids my age were looking at the cartoons or the sporting page, I was actually looking at research uh, pieces. And I think what's interesting is that I actually got to experience the thrill of victory and then the agony of defeat when it comes to investing. Because I still remember back, one of my first stocks that I bought was a gaming stock. Mm -hmm. It went up multiples and it actually helped me buy my first car. But I will also tell you, I can't tell you I was perfect because I actually did buy one. It was an industrial company that was helping to refurbish piping underneath the surface. And that one lost about 50% of its value. So I learned both the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. So that's really where I got my feet wet, if you will. Mm -hmm. And when I went to college, I went to Loyola University here in Maryland. And in addition to getting my undergraduate and graduate degree there, I still right now serve as a uh, adjunct professor of international finance. Wow. But I got three gifts from the, from the college. I got a great education. I met my wife, who we're getting close to 25 years of marriage. Wow, congrats. <laughs> Thank you. And I actually met a professor who years down the road, a couple of years down the road, ultimately was the one that offered me a job at then a place called Alex Brown. Um, and that's really where I, I got into it. And, and, and Alex Brown, did you start out as a, because you started out as an accountant at first, right? So my, my, yes. Yeah, so, so my first job, I was at um, T. Rowe Price. I was a fund accountant. Okay. And to afford paying for my graduate program, I was a teaching assistant for this particular professor. And back then when you're in, in accounting, it was the old school where you had to go through on the manual calculator and find every single penny. Oh my and God. at the time I was the accountant for one of the biggest funds there. It was International Stock Fund. And if you were off one penny of over a billion dollar fund, you had to stay there. So I got to tell you, I was a couple of times late meeting my professor <laughs> for his teaching uh, assistance. And he said, you know what? I want to keep, you know, a little bit more closer tabs on you. So I'm working over at Alex Brown as a consultant. They're coming out with more asset allocation and what we call managed risk investment programs. Mm. I'd like you to come join me over there. And I got to tell you, I don't even think he finished with the offer and I had signed. I was ready to go because it was a really exciting opportunity because at that point in time, in, in the early 90s, mm -hmm. you have to think about uh, Alex Brown. They had taken Microsoft public, Sun Micro public. And there were a lot of clients that were sitting there with concentrated stock positions. Yeah. And we helped them manage through that and hedge a lot of their positions over time. So that's really where I got started. I then eventually went on to become the head of the Asset Allocation Quantitative Analysis Group. And that was a pretty successful group. And if you think back to 2000, we did a really good job. Diversifying people during that meltdown yeah. was a great thing to do. However, and, quanti that time, and, and quantitative yeah. uh, analysis at that point was pretty early uh, in, in the field too, right? 
No, absolutely. So we were looking at all the types of derivative strategies to help hedge uh, these investments. You know, asset allocation is very quantitative. I mean, all these things are done now with computers, right. but we actually did a lot of the math to come up with those wow. things and wow. trying to come up with plans to get people to diversify over time and holding their hands through that, you know, it was pretty, pretty exciting. But again, it saved people a lot of money when the market melted down during the tech bubble. Yeah. So then investors said, that's great. You saved me a lot of money, but you guys are Deutsche Bank because Deutsche Bank had bought uh, Alex Brown at the time. Okay. And they said, you guys are a global bank. You got to have some opinions on the market. So then that's when I was tapped to become the chief investment strategist in 2001 to uh, really start to articulate the messages of what we thought about different asset classes. No, and, and that, that's really cool. And, and even your, just your career path is, is really interesting uh, because you, you recognized growing opportunities and there were challenges at that point, and, but you, you took advantage of that and, and had it grow. So for, I'm assuming for the chief investment an, uh, strategist at Deutsche, uh, you had a, I mean, you didn't know everything at that point. You, you had to really kind of grow into that position and, and learn on the job. So two things, I, I remember talking to my father about it, and it was a big gamble. Because if you think about that in the early 1990s, what was the chief investment strategist? Usually it was the chief equity strategist because usually the person that they tapped was the institutional investor, number one ranked tech analyst or the number one financial analyst. Yeah. Well, I didn't have that. I came up through the asset allocation portfolio management route. And in many ways, I think that helped me out because I didn't just talk about equities. I talked about the entire spectrum of, of asset classes from fixed income to commodities, to alternatives, to, to the equity market. And I think that that was really appreciated by our advisors at the time that it went a little bit deeper across the asset classes. I think the other thing that's exciting, and you mentioned it, I love opportunity. I love building things. Yeah. And that gave me the opportunity to look at what other people were doing and then to build it the way that I thought would most align with what our advisors needed at that time. And you had that opportunity to, to build it again at Raymond James, right? No, I did. So at, at Raymond James, when I, I joined here two years ago, yeah. um, and they didn't have a CIO. And the only difference really for me between the strategist and the CIO is that you have a little bit more responsibility from a portfolio management side as well. So I came over here and I got to build it once again to try and consolidate just the, the supercharged intellectual power of Raymond James and boil it down to understandable chunks, if you will, for our clients. No, and, and that, that's a really important point about the communicating, simplifying. We're going to get more into that in the second segment. But let's take a quick break here. Uh, the market is under pressure right now, so make sure you are managing your risk and uh, you can survive this uh, potential pullback <laughs> continuing. Uh, so when we return, we are going to talk about headlines versus reality, and then we will also get into the importance of communicating and simplifying complicated concepts. We'll be back. I'm here with Scott St. Clair, and Scott is one of the senior product coaches at Margaret Smith. Now, Scott, we've both been doing this for a long time, and we know that investment research takes a lot of time. There's so many factors that you want to look into to try to figure out that whether this is a stock to buy or not. Quarterly earnings, huge sales growth. Hey, are institutions buying it? The list goes on and on. 
Yeah, it's a common question. I hear it all the time. I don't have time to, to do this work. So you don't have to spend that much time. If you have a tool like Marcus Smith, we do a lot of that work for you. Right there on the chart, earnings, sales, group strength, institutional sponsorship, like you just mentioned. Right. It's all there in the chart, so it allows you to make a decision much easier. Yeah, and the beauty is that we have in-house analysts that go through the SEC filings. They pull out those numbers, and they put it right on the markets make chart, and all you have to do is analyze them. Yeah, I couldn't imagine having to go to the SEC website and look at the income statement, et cetera. That sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, and, and, and that would take hours and hours, and in that time, you can go through hundreds of stocks and find the best ones. So don't miss out on a big winner because you don't have enough time to research it. Go to investors.com slash URLTK for more information. Larry Adam is our guest on Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Okay, Larry, let's get into the, the topic of headlines versus reality. Why is this an important thing for investors to be always aware of? Because there's so much noise out there and so much information. It, it's just kind of hard to sift through what's good and what's not. No, it's a great point that you bring up because I always tell my team, I don't want to read the headlines. I want to write the headlines. Meaning we always want to have our research out there in front of people and not really following what they're saying, because you'll find out over time that a lot of the things that people generally accept are not necessarily the truth or you need to dig a little deeper. And I think probably one of the biggest examples, we have the election coming up and you're going to hear a lot of rhetoric uh, from different strategists and CIOs over the upcoming months, but I think you got to dig deeper. So a couple of examples for you. You're going to hear that GDP growth is the best when you have a democratic sweep. And if you do look at the numbers, that is actually a true statement. But just keep in mind that you have to look at the dispersion that has occurred because that particular scenario has had the best GDP, for example, under Truman when we were rebuilding from the World War II, but it's also had some of the worst under President Obama when we had the Great Recession. So you can't just always take it at what's on face value. Another one you'll, you'll hear about is that split government is the best for the market. And in general, I, I will say I tend to agree with that because then you don't see the extreme movements in policy. And if you look at the three top performances when you combine all the scenarios, they do represent gridlock or a mixed government. However, I would also tell you that the two worst scenarios are also a split government. So again, you can't paint a picture over all of them. And then I'll give you two more because these are gonna come up pretty fast and, and furious. One that you're gonna hear is if we see the corporate tax rate go higher, mm -hmm. that's gonna end this bull market. But if you do the research and you go back during the post-World War II era, we have seen the government raise the corporate tax rate four times. In all four of those instances, the S&P 500 has rallied six months before and six months after it has been implemented. What's the caveat? In all four of those instances, the economy was strong, meaning that there was no recession in sight for at least almost two years. So my point is that assuming policymakers are aware of that and they don't raise the corporate tax rate in the midst of a recession, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a negative for the market. And then one other one I'll tell you about yeah. is everyone's concerned about we may not know the winner on election day and the market's going to sell off. And if you go back to 2000, you would see that the market did sell off about 5% from 
from election day till December 13th when Al Gore conceded. However, you have to keep in mind that we were in the middle of the tech bubble bursting. During that same time period, technology was down 17%. So if you take out technology, the market was basically flat. It was basically in a holding pattern, waiting to see who won. And then it once again started to, to move higher. So my point is, you can't look at these things unless you do the research and you look underneath the surface to see what's important. And I have plenty more. We can talk about sectors. But I will tell you, don't change your sectors based on who's in the White House, because that's never worked. The classic example that we give is that if you look at healthcare, everyone says that when Democrats take office, that's a sector you don't want to be in. If you would have listened to that, you would have missed out on the second best performing sector under President Clinton, the third best performing sector under President Obama. Wow, that's uh, that's really interesting. Uh, and but when, yeah, and like, like you said, when when you take a step back or dig deeper into this, yeah, you know, and using healthcare as an example, I mean, there's 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 a lot of innovation going underneath the surface, and make making the industry uh, more innovative and uh, just more efficient. Uh, just and you can look at right now what's going on, where it's in, they're incorporating all these different types of technology that's going to dramatically change the entire sector uh, and the entire field of how we're all diagnosed with uh, whatever we have and how we prevent things too. Uh, I agree completely with you. Uh, As you said, with COVID still being part of our daily lives, whether it's medical supplies or biotech to figure out how we can combat this, that'll be a catalyst for for the sector. You've also mentioned demographics, right? (laughs) The aging population, not just here in the United States, Across the globe, you have aging demographics where people are living longer and want to get the best healthcare possible. So I think the visibility and earnings for that particular sector is pretty strong. Now, do you have some common kind of uh, headlines versus reality? We, we went over the election stuff, but over just in investments and or just uh, larger kind of investment advice, uh, not advice, but uh, just kind of those truisms. Uh, with headlines versus reality that people assume one thing about investments, but uh, the reality is something else that you've experienced at least. So, you know, this is one that's common, but I think it it speaks volumes to what's actually taking place in the market and and it's happened this year. And I think one of the best things to always look for is that when everybody thinks they figured it out, go the other way. So, you know, again, as we came into this year, everybody was raising their targets and moving it higher, right? As that market started to sell off, everybody kept lowering their targets. Just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, at the end of September, you know, in the beginning of September, late August, everybody was raising their targets on the S&P 500, individual stocks for no other reason than that we see momentum. But Mm -hmm. momentum really isn't necessarily a fundamental. And I want to get back to the fundamental. So when we come up with our valuations for, for example, the S&P 500, We look at dividend discount models, which are fundamentals. You get cash flow. We look at relative value. So if I'm an investor, I got to choose between this asset class and that asset class, right? That's an important determinant on where you come up with your uh, targets. And then also when we look at the markets, we go back historically and try and not look at the average, but look at the dynamics that are taking place today and what was the market doing back then. Because I don't really think you can look at the interest rate environment today 
and apply to what it looked like in the early 80s, right? right? You have to look at what's happening today versus those other time periods. So be always careful when you see the word average next to it. No, that, that's really, really good advice. Now, uh, another uh, common thing that everyone has trouble with is, is just communi communicating in a, a complex concept and, and trying to make it simple. Uh, talk about the importance of this because um, I've definitely experienced this and, and when we try to explain how we invest and all, all, all that, uh, it's, hard to it's hard to kind of communicate that and make people relate to some of these really, really important concepts that you're trying to get across. How have you uh, tackled this uh, issue? So I would tell you, I always tell people that what I do is a commodity, meaning that the research that we produce is done on the street. And whether it's by Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, everybody has an investment strategy team, right? And everyone's very smart. So how do we differentiate ourselves? Mm -hmm. It's by how we communicate and tell our story of what we think about the different you know, asset classes. And we're, we do a pretty good job. We always have a theme around what we're trying to get across. So if you were to look back at some of my research, my quarterly reports, as an example, you'd find things of us comparing the markets to Forrest Gump, uh, Batman versus Superman, um, Independence Day most recently. And this upcoming one, we're gonna talk about, believe it or not, the Pennsylvania Turnpike turns 80 years old this year, wow. in this October. So we'll then do an overlay, you know, we'll talk about detours, revving up, maintenance, uh, all those types of things to help convey to clients what we're actually trying to articulate. And I, the reason I say that, and, and you kind of alluded to this, you know, I always use the saying that if, the tr if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, did it make a sound? Well, if an investment strategist or a CIO makes an investment call, and you can't understand it or invest in it, did we really make a call? So it's always our goal to make sure that our clients fully understand this. And whether that's done with these themes, taking that extra step with our graphics to make sure that they, people remember them, you know, I think that's how you have to do it. And, and we've done a really good job with that. Yeah, and uh, it, it seems like, and, and you brought up the, the commodities and just research becoming more of a commodity, which is, which is amazing. Uh, but it's like everything has become a commodity except uh, communicating and, and being able to get it across. Because the, the mediums, you, you can reach so many people these days, but are you, is your message or what you're communicating or what you're teaching, is that memorable? And, and that's how you'll see how people go viral and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'll bring up a point that I spoke at the New York Society of Analysts a couple of years ago, and it had all the major players on there. You know who they are. And, you know, they were arguing whether or not GDP was going to be 3.2, 3.1, 3%. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about Batman and Superman, talking about the <laughs> kryptonites of the markets and how Batman wasn't the smartest or the, or the strongest or the fastest. And the way he survived was by using his intellect. And that's how investors have to view the market. It's all about yeah, selectivity. Yeah. Yep. And but I will the reason I bring that up is because afterwards when you're mingling with people, you know, everybody remembers that, right? I still get calls today about what's your theme. You know, people look for what our theme is going to be for the upcoming quarter. In fact, our weekly, we've done it, started doing it as well. And you know, they're a bit, little bit lighter, but you know, we'll look at everything from music to 
uh, an anniversary, a day, like it's National Fitness Day is coming up this week. So you'll see in our weekly, it's about that. But people get a little education about, you know, a little bit about the social side of it, but then they get some investment. And I think combining them definitely makes it more memorable. Yeah, no, and if you make it fun, you make it memorable and, and people learn about it and they keep coming back to learn more. Absolutely. So knowing when to determine uh, data points and which ones are important and which ones aren't can make all the difference in your investment success. Coming up next, we are going to discuss about the K recovery. Stay tuned. Market Smith will give you a huge edge in the stock market. Better stocks, bigger profits. Market Smith is the top research platform for IBD. It's just the best tool for individual stock selection. Everything within Market Smith is designed to bring those best stocks to the surface. It does a lot of the work for you of filtering down to the potential leaders. It's when you take the training wheels off and you're ready to invest on a more professional level. Market Smith will help you take control of your investment life. If you want to get serious about investing, start your membership today. We are back with Larry Adam on Investing with IBD, sponsored by Market Smith. Okay, Larry, let's talk about the K recovery. But before we get into that, uh, can can all of us go and take a look at some of uh, the research that you were talking about or, or some of the, your communication? No, absolutely. I, probably the easiest way to get it is to follow me on Twitter, and it's it's Larry Adam RJ on Twitter, or I, I have a LinkedIn account. We put most of the stuff up on there. Uh, as well, in addition to normally we put on a, a chart of a day. So you get a lot of information on both those accounts. Perfect. Yeah. So go and definitely check that out. You're going to learn about a lot of uh, really cool investment concepts. Now, here is uh, another concept that, that you talked about that's very, very memorable, uh, the K recovery. So let's first start off by defining uh, what a K recovery is. Well, the reason we came out with the K is because as we've, we had the pandemic, you had all these economists out there calling for a V, a W, an L, a Nike swoosh, check mark, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so we decided that after looking at all the letters, that really the K was probably the best one to symbolize what we saw coming into the market. And if you just think about a K and you go straight up the K, those are for sectors of the market that did not skip a beat, that actually went straight up and really saw a lot of the trends accelerated because of what happened in the pandemic. So for that, think about e-commerce, think about medical devices, think about streaming, which we're doing right now, right? right? They all benefited from that. If you think about the other upper side of the K, that's where we were seeing the V-shaped recovery that everybody was talking about. And that was because there was a lot of pent up demand for different uh, supplies and services and, and goods. So for that, think about home improvement, where all of us got tired of looking at our homes. We said, oh my gosh, I got to get my home improved. Um, if you look at technology, where nobody wanted to get caught short again when it comes to their, their technology. Yeah. Think about elective surgeries, right? So that was the upper side of the K. If you go to the other lower side of the K, that's where we saw that the fact that we thought that some industries would recover, but it would just take a longer period of time, whether that's because of psychological barriers or because of new protocols. For that, think about airlines, where just a psychological barrier about getting on a plane. For restaurants, the fact that you're at 25 or 50% capacity, 
that's going to take some time for them to fully recover. And then think about automobiles, because yes, automobile sales have been a little bit healthier here of late, but I don't think that's going to be sustained because if you still have an unemployment rate that's at eight or 9% at the end of this year, I don't think that's going to continue to be as strong as what people think because you don't buy a big ticket item like a car unless you feel pretty solid about your, your, you know, your job prospects. And then if you go down the K, straight down the K, that's unfortunately where you know, parts of the economy aren't going to survive or really, really struggle. So for that, it's really a lot of the small businesses. And you know, we draw up the fact that the Small Business Administration did a wonderful job getting out 5 million loans to small businesses. The problem, there's 25 million small businesses here in the United States. So you can't get it to all of them. That's also where you're going to see some issues with energy companies, where there's other things in addition to demand that's going to continue to hamper their, their prospects. So the point of the K is that different parts of the economy will recover at a different pace and magnitude. And when it comes to investing, we continue to prefer the sectors and subsectors that are at the top part of that K. No, and, and that makes a lot of sense. And that's how we, we generally look at it. Uh, we're always looking for the ones that are, have the potential to grow over the next uh, number of years and, and could survive uh, these changes in, in the economy. So what, what are some of the, and you mentioned it a little bit, but let's try to dig down a little bit deeper here for some of these uh, industries in the upper part of the K. What, 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 are, what are some of the best sectors uh, that, that are, uh, should thrive over the next couple of years? So if you look at the top of the K, the four sectors that we continue to like the most are technology, mm-hmm. communication services, healthcare, and then consumer discretionary. And consumer discretionary, you have to remember that that's pretty much dominated by two sub-industries, if you will. And that's going to be the internet and then home improvement. And I address both of them at the top of that K. But what I think is also important, so that's broadly speaking, the sectors that we continue to like. But this is a market where selectivity is absolutely critical because you are seeing a record amount of dispersion between sectors and sub-industries. So even within sub-industries, you're seeing this K play out. So let's do a couple of examples there. Even within industrials, think about this. Air freight and logistics is at the upper part of that K, right? Helping with the e-commerce. Right. On the lower side of it, that's where you're going to see your automobiles. That's where you're going to see aerospace and the airlines. If you look at more in the, in the real estate space, home builders, because of the pent-up demand, they're doing fine. But hotels, res- resorts, uh, you know, if you even want to look at cruise lines, that's part of that, that sub-industry. They're not doing well. If you look at interactive home entertainment, that's doing well. Casinos and gaming, not so well. So again, my point is that even within every sector, you can find areas that are actually reaping the benefit, if you will, of this recover. And some that are just still, you know, in the lower ends, and it's, it, there's a stall pattern, if you will, before they're actually going to get their momentum back. And I think the big game changer in all of this is ultimately going to be when we get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And the one point that I do want to make about the vaccine is everybody asks, you know, when we're going to get it. And I will tell you that our biotech analyst believes that there's an 80 to 90% chance that we get one for limited use by the end of this year. But 
the bigger part of the story is going to be what is the effectiveness. Right. Because if the effectiveness is going to be something like the flu vaccination, which is somewhere between 40 and 60%, that's a big difference from if it's something like hepatitis B or Ebola or you know, smallpox, where it's like 95% effective. Because if it's only 50 or 60% effective, I think it's going to be a longer road to get back to normal. And the reason I say that is that there's a lot of people out there that are trying to do this reopening trade, looking at some of these sectors at the bottom part. Yeah. And I just think it's a little early until we get a little bit more evidence that we're really going to see that reopening on a more sustained basis. No, yeah, you bring up a really good topic here because uh, what it, it could just be a new normal where now even the office space, not maybe everyone's not coming in five days a week. Maybe in the office space, you have the cubicles spread out more uh, or you have a rotation of when people come in. Uh, I mean, that could all change. I, I don't know, about, about, let me ask you this, because I, I know for here at IBD, we have become uh, even more productive working from home. Pretty much all of us are working from home. Uh, here at IBD, uh, wh what have you seen? Ha have you seen that type of pr productivity at Raymond James or uh, is it a little different? No, I think that there's been an incredible uh, uptick in productivity. Uh, I will tell you that I work at the office a couple of days a week because I do television, I do webinars, and as good as your technology can be at home, you know, I'd rather be hardwired into everything true. That, yeah. that, that we do. So we, I do come to work you know, three times probably a week for those types of things. I agree with you that in the short run, I think that there is a more disruptive change, if you will, in the environment where people are going to be more productive working at home. Mm -hmm. I will take the other side of that longer term only because I think one of the reasons why everybody has been so productive is because we've been prisoners to our homes for so long, right? Where we've been working, you know, where honestly there's a blurring between work and private life in many ways, right? Because I find myself on the computer eight, nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night sometimes, All right? All the time, yeah. <laughs> so, so there has been this blurring. But I th I, I'm, my, my gut tells me that the further this goes and we get back to normal and all the restaurants are open, all the gyms are open, right? right? I do worry that in the future, there could be this time where, you know, hey, Arusha, you want to go out for lunch? So then we go out to lunch. And then on my way home, I'm like, well, you know what? Let me knock out that gym, you know, for an hour or two. And then, wait, you know what? My, my, my daughters, they have a soccer game today. So then I go to that soccer. Because remember, all that's been canceled yes. as of now. So I think that there is a balance. And I think there, there's clearly some incentives for us to balance and have some people working at home. But I do think that some of that productivity that we've seen for some people may not be as fully engaged, you know, when we do completely return back to normal. No, I, that, that is a really good point. I, I, and I think we're definitely going to hit a point where everyone's going to be real excited to go back to the office too, uh, because you can only stay at home for, for so long. Um, so, you know, there are, there are a number of sectors right there that you want to keep an eye on in this changing economy. You know, obviously, as Larry said, it is a little too early to see whether uh, we're going to get back to normal or not. So you want to keep an open mind there. Thanks, Larry, for joining us today. No, it's been my pleasure. I enjoyed it a lot. 
Next week, we will have Scott St. Clair returning to the show. Scott is a senior product coach at MarketSmith and also a frequent speaker on IBD Live. So that's it for this week on Investing with IBD. I'm Arusha Pires, and thanks for listening. And for this week's Nilton Charts, make sure to go to Investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.